nice. <laughs> Just recently, over the past few days, several of you have arrived, joining the rest of us who have been here. And it's nice this evening chanting to have your voices join us. I've also been appreciating your energy in the hall and around the building. Just that uh, increase in numbers, it's tangible, it's noticeable. I noticed this morning, in fact, on the, on the board, the note that was put up. Um, I think there had been, I think it was a pot washing sign-up sheet that, for extra help that was up a few days ago. And then this morning I saw this note written on it about um, your services are no longer needed, you know, now we're full, so the jobs are covered. And something about that just really uh, touched me, you know, that just that way, uh, that support of being here together, practicing, you know, and, and the additional numbers sort of doing the various tasks and jobs here to keep the place running. And it's really for each other. It's in service of this place and us doing this practice together. It's quite sweet, so welcome. The topic tonight uh, is uh, linked to what I was just talking about. What I was just talking about is a part of it, because tonight I'm going to be uh, reflecting on what it means to take refuge, reflecting on what it means, you know, these chants that we do here together each evening before a talk. So taking refuge in Buddha, in Dhamma, in Sangha, what that might mean for each of us. Maybe for many of you, maybe for most of you, uh, the refuges are a very familiar and meaningful part of your practice part of your day, part of your life. Maybe you chant regularly, or maybe you reflect on the refuges and what that means for you. Maybe when you come in the hall, if you bow, that's a part of your practice of bowing to those refuges of Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha, But I know that sometimes uh, there are some here for whom the refuges are less familiar and perhaps less meaningful. Um, Maybe there's even some uncertainty or some resistance. Sometimes in rituals which can be so beautiful and so meaningful, Uh, we can have a mixed relationship to them, particularly if our upbringing, uh, our training in different religions or different forms uh, has been such that uh, we distrust 
ritual or those kinds of forms. So maybe there's reluctance to take them on without really questioning. And I think that that questioning is really healthy, really important. And perhaps something those of us for whom they're more familiar should do more often as a way of uh, reminding ourselves what the refuges mean for us. So even if they're familiar, are we awake to it? Do we know in our hearts what it is we're chanting when we chant them together? Do we connect with that meaning? And sometimes just remembering can be uh, very important, a really strong support in practice. And I'll tell you a little story of my own, uh, very particular to uh, the refuges, but also uh, very much to chanting the precepts here at the Forest Refuge in particular. So I've always kind of enjoyed chanting. You know, I feel fairly relaxed about chanting and certainly something I've done over the many years of my practice and found my way into, which I'll talk more about in this talk. But when I started teaching here uh, at the Forest Refuge, I had this really interesting and new experience, which was that um, I wasn't so used to chanting all eight precepts. I was really used to chanting five, so they were very familiar, could really roll off the tongue, (laughs) even though, you know, it's in Pali. So I kind of had to re-familiarize myself with the, the additional three because in this seat, you know, it's important that we chant all eight so that whoever out there is taking the eight precepts has that support in terms of chanting in the hall. And what I found when I first started doing it, much to my surprise, was I felt really shaky and kind of nervous and uh, tentative. And my voice, I could really hear it in my voice. And then the first time it happened was a setup. (laughs) Because I got kind of worried about it, like, oh my gosh, like I got really nervous and my voice was shaky. Is that going to happen again? And so for a period of some weeks uh, of teaching here, and maybe even over a couple, few different months, I had this strange relationship to chanting where I'd start chanting, but my mind would be going ahead to those last three precepts and wondering, was I going to struggle with them? Was I going to feel embarrassed and, you know, have this shaky voice and, uh, yeah, take it very personally? And so the more I felt worried about it, of course, the worse it was. Um, (laughs) So my big revelation and practice became actually (laughs) taking refuge (laughs) as I was chanting the refuges. You know, taking refuge in what they really meant for me. Taking it really to heart. 
and again, I'll be talking about what that means, you know, in this talk, but how it helped with that particular process was letting it be okay. Like, so what? So maybe the chanting ended up being trembly, shaky voice chanting. That's okay. You know, to not take it personally, to not have this idea about who I was or who I should be, and, you know, so me. And to just open my mouth and see what happened. Trying to just be with the process. It was an important lesson, practice for me. I still don't know. Mostly it doesn't happen anymore. (laughs) But uh, you never know. (laughs) So refuge has been on my mind lately, um, in large part because uh, the staff... um, of this place and the retreat center next door take on a theme, a dharma theme for reflection each month and then meet in groups twice a month to talk about that theme together. And the theme recently has been refuge. So there have been some very interesting dharma discussions uh, among some of us uh, on staff about refuge and what it means. And there's, I was surprised, there's quite a range. I think, you know, when we don't talk about it, we might assume that everyone thinks the way we think or uh, understands things the way that we do. So as a group, I found that we really started with just looking at that word. Like, what does it mean to take refuge? Is that something that we individually could relate to on a personal level? For some of us, yeah. Uh, For some of us, there was this real sense of connection with the the idea of safety, of a kind of protection, of a kind of shelter, or something that aids us, a support. For others, even that idea of something safe, something sheltering, was very foreign, not really accessible. I think of taking refuge uh, in a way as placing our hearts or aligning our hearts with what's reliable, what's dependable. And usually, I mean externally in the world, we do that uh, with a lot of different things that aren't ultimately reliable. They're reliable and wonderful when we have them, like a home or a job, or a bank account, or a healthy body, or a strong, clear chanting voice. But all those things are subject to change and outside of our control. So they're not 
on the deepest level, really the safest place to put our heart, to align our hearts, to place our hearts on. In these discussions about what refuge meant, I remember this one uh, chat with a friend, and he was telling me about how the people in his group, we meet in small groups, and uh, I wasn't a part of this group, but he said that his group was talking about refuge and thinking about it at first as like an island in a stormy sea. So if you're... uh, if your boat falls apart and you're, you know, in the stormy sea and then you find this island, it's a, it's a refuge. It's this safe haven from that stormy sea. But then his group was sort of taking it a bit further and thinking, well, at what point does that island become a prison? You know, the place where you're stuck, where you're trapped. So we started thinking together that maybe refuge rather than the island was more like learning to swim, (laughs) was more like surfing the waves or uh, finding ways to stay afloat in the stormy seas of life. So I mentioned those things that we can take refuge in, the kind of external things. It's interesting to look in our experience, in our lives, at what do we take refuge in internally? And I mean kind of habitually. (laughs) Where are the places, you know, that we're habituated to go in our minds, in our hearts? So in a way, you know, We're making that our refuge. So is it our mental habits? Maybe our fears or our anxieties or our resentments, our sense of being right. Maybe we take refuge in pleasant experience, in pleasure. I know sometimes uh, we Americans (laughs) can take refuge in food. Good food, you know, really treasure it. (laughs) Like it's a kind of refuge. Sometimes we take refuge in sleep. I know I've done this (laughs) often, just that checking out poor man's nibbana. So often in the ups and downs of life, we look to take refuge, we try to take refuge in the ups. So in pleasure rather than pain, in gain rather than loss, in praise rather than blame, 
and in fame, being held in high regard rather than the opposite. And without a deeper sense of refuge, when the downs come, which they will, when we lose what we've gained, when we're blamed rather than praised, when those other sides arrive, we're lost at sea. If we've been sort of clinging to the ups as a place of refuge. So here we are at the forest refuge. And it really is. I love this place. (laughs) I love being here with you. It's quite a refuge in the seclusion and the stillness, the incredible support for practice in the company of others on the same path. It's a refuge from the demands of our lives, the busyness, the many responsibilities. One of my favorite stories about this place happened a few years back, shortly after it was built. My husband is a builder and he didn't work on this place, but he was doing some work uh, down the road at the Buddhist study center. And he was expecting a delivery one day And so the delivery guy called to say of lumber, you know, to say he was on his way. And my husband asked him, you know, do you know where it is? Do you know the road? And the guy said, oh, yeah. Yeah, I know it because I used to deliver up there to that forest refugee place. It just makes me wonder what he thinks goes on here. (laughs) But maybe it's not so far from the truth. (laughs) If we're sort of, you know, running, for example, from things like busyness and demands and uh, stresses in our lives, to be here in the quiet and hope that we'll be protected... (laughs) then maybe we're refugees. (laughs) Um, But you know the old saying, wherever you go, there you are. So here we are. With whatever we brought with us in terms of how we relate, how we respond to life, to the ups and the downs. So just to look at these three refuges together a bit. The first refuge, refuge in Buddha. The Buddha's not here. I haven't met him yet, (laughs) or her. (laughs) So what are we taking refuge in? 
when we bow, are we bowing to that statue behind me? Often in the places where we practice, and maybe even in our homes, uh, we have Buddha images, statues or pictures, depictions of a Buddha. And the Buddha is normally depicted in, uh, you know, different positions, and uh, there's different styles from different countries, but there's some commonality you know, the Buddha is sitting with that posture of integrity or standing, with that strength of presence, that open, uh, awake, embodied presence. We don't see images of the Buddha sort of shaking his head at us (laughs) or wagging his finger or, you know, with a furrowed brow or uh, lost in self-doubt. No, it's composure, serenity, alertness, certain strength, integrity. Not lost in ecstasy, not drowning in despair. So when we bow, it's to those qualities that the Buddha represents, those qualities in each of us, those qualities that we're placing our hearts on, that we're aligning with in our practice, in our lives. Often for me, bowing to a Buddha image is also a reminder or an acknowledgement of my intention to align with those qualities, to remember those qualities that I have them too, that I can do this, I can be this. Bowing to a Buddha took a while for me to get used to when I first came to this practice. At first, you know, I just uh, did it because I was in a culture that did it. And so out of respect for that culture, you know, I got on board. (laughs) But I didn't have that sense yet of what it might mean, really, for me. And because of my uh, conditioning, you know, around religion or uh, rituals, forms like that, my conditioning was, don't do it. (laughs) Don't trust it. So it took a while. And so sometimes when I'd be bowing to a Buddha image, Really, I'd be bowing to the flowers on the altar, to uh, whatever I could connect with, whatever helped my heart feel uh, aligned. And over time, it really shifted. It changed to very much appreciating those qualities in practice, 
that we're cultivating very uh, tangibly, very uh, concretely. So refuge in the Buddha is really refuge in knowing. The Buddha is called the one who knows, or, which I like better, that which knows. So refuge in the Buddha is refuge in that which is wise, that we all have that we're just learning how to more and more consistently uh, align ourselves with. Not something distant or foreign. In the Dhammapada, there's that famous uh, passage that starts with, um, with our thoughts, we create the world. And I think as we practice, we really start to see this, you know, that what's going on in our minds, the filters, the different perceptions in the mind, we're really creating a world over and over. And so to know the world, we need to know the mind. And this knowing This is what the Buddha represents. This is what we can take refuge in. (coughs) Really being that knowing. Putting that knowing sort of at the, the driver, in the driver's seat. And this is different, being that knowing, than being the knower. Because if we have this sense somehow that our practice is going to uh, point us to seeing the knower, it's trouble. (laughs) I mean, and when you really look, have you found a knower yet? I haven't. If we are the one who knows, then we're also the one who forgets, the one who is lost, confused, resistant, angry, sleepy, (laughs) judgmental, scared. No, it's not the one. It's the knowing. So we let go through our practice of identification with experience and we trust more and more the knowing of experience. The incredible uh, power of that. The qualities of a Buddha that um, fullness of presence that knowing quality, also fearlessness when that's what we're practicing. There's a sense of courage, 
there's also compassion. It's not a knowing that's judgmental in any way, or harsh, or critical, or condemning. It's a compassionate knowing, a loving knowing, kind knowing. As our practice deepens, this becomes a deeper and deeper refuge. And what we know is the Dhamma, the truth, the way things are, the second refuge. There's a teaching from the Buddha that says, who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma. Who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. So the mind that knows sees the way things are. The mind that knows sees the Dhamma. So it's not something esoteric, something far away, something in the future. The Dhamma is immediate. It's right here, right now. And it's inclusive, all-inclusive. The highest truths, the peak experiences, and the simplicity in a moment, just a breath, a sensation, a perception, a thought. Sense experience, emptiness, form, all of it, everything is Dhamma. And Dhamma becomes a refuge, really becomes this place of safety and rest and shelter when we see that there's nothing we need to change or fix or attach to or run from. But that we can open to what is, all of it. There's no need to become more studied, although there's nothing wrong with study. There's no need to become a smarter person or a better person. It's much more a process of letting go in a way of emptying our minds of all the shoulds and the should-bes that get in the way of this direct knowing, a direct being with what is. Mm. 
This is a, a favorite little passage from A Still Forest Pool, an old favorite book, Teachings of Ajahn Chah. One day a famous woman lecturer on Buddhist metaphysics came to see Ajahn Chah. This woman gave periodic teachings in Bangkok on the Abhidhamma and complex Buddhist psychology. In talking to Ajahn Chah, she detailed how important it was for people to understand Buddhist psychology and how much her students benefited from their study with her. She asked him whether he agreed with the importance of such understanding. Yes, very important, he agreed. Delighted, she further questioned whether he had his own students learn Abhidhamma. Oh, yes, of course. And where, she asked, did he recommend that they start? Which books and studies were best? Only here, he said, pointing to his heart. Only here. That's where the teachings become alive, take root in our own hearts, in our own experience. So refuge in the Dhamma, refuge in the truth, it means being open to flux, to change. Even in a single sitting or day or week of practice, quite a lot of change can happen. We want that island, something we can climb out on, something we can cling to, something that might stay the same. But really, what is that? This is a quotation that I liked from Simone de Beauvoir. I tore myself away from the safe comfort of certainties through my love for the truth, and truth rewarded me. So refuge in knowing, refuge in the truth, in the way things are, and the third refuge, refuge in Sangha. Traditionally, this meant the Sangha of awakened disciples of the Buddha. I like to think of it as the community of those dedicated to knowing, to aligning with rather than resisting the truth. And there's a real support in Sangha. It's what I was feeling this morning with just a few more of you coming in, that energetic 
shared field of energetic presence when we're practicing together and supporting each other in that way. I was on staff next door at the retreat center back in the 1980s. And I remember during those years when I would take trips to my family home in New Jersey, which was often uh, challenging in many ways. (laughs) And then I'd come back and come into IMS and my community of other staff members and practitioners. And sometimes the, the difference was just so striking. It felt like sort of arriving back in a deva realm, you know, this community of angelic beings. Maybe others of you who have been on staff don't think of it in the same way, because it can also be really challenging to live and work and practice together so intimately. And I'm, I'm, I don't mean to uh, not uh, acknowledge that, but just that support of like-minded people, others that are at least aiming toward skillful speech, skillful actions. Not to say that we always succeed, but to at least have that shared aim. It can be really supportive, very helpful. So in a way, that's the kind of external meaning of sangha, that community of like-minded people. Internally, it might be seen as our capacity to befriend what is wholesome. So aligning with these wholesome qualities, like virtue, ethical conduct, I also recently heard in a discussion of Sangha the perspective that as human beings who are by nature relational, that the refuge of Sangha is really the way that we relate, the way that we interact with others. And that it's, it's through that, that relational aspect of Sangha that really the first two refuges of Buddha and Dhamma, that knowing, that aligning with the truth, that's the way that those qualities, those factors can uh, become manifest in the world, can be seen, can be experienced in the world, in how we relate with others. I really like this because for me there's always been a little bit of a danger uh, in holding Sangha to be only like-minded people because there's a lot of 
people that aren't like-minded. And if we can only take refuge in those people who think like we do, where's the safety in that? I got to practice this just a few nights ago in a really tangible, um, challenging way. My husband and I were visiting with a relative of his that usually we see once a year, you know, Thanksgiving gatherings. And so it's usually in a big group. And there isn't really the opportunity for really more deeply hearing from each other, getting to know each other. So this person is perfectly lovely, a kind person, a good person, and made us a lovely dinner, shared her home with us, had us over. And then we sat and visited. And we almost... (laughs) almost made it through the visit before we got to politics (laughs) and views and opinions. Uh, But at a certain point, that was what she wanted to talk about. And her, her views and opinions and ideas and frame of reference are pretty much completely opposite (laughs) to ours. But I was kind of prepared, because I had heard this study a while back about the aging brain. And one of the things that (laughs) struck me in this study, they said that really the best thing for the aging brain isn't, you know, doing crossword puzzles or Sudoku or, you know, these kinds of uh, mental exercises. They're okay, but they don't really uh, help deeply. And what they found helped deeply, according to these scientific studies, um, is thinking outside of the box of your normal way of thinking. So they gave as an example, you know, if you're a liberal, you need to engage with conservatives and really try to understand their point of view, not engage in a combative, debating kind of way, but to like make the mind or encourage the mind to actually open to different perspectives, different viewpoints. So that really struck me. And I thought, oh, yeah, I, I can get that. That feels right, that that would be good for the brain. <laughs> But I don't have the opportunity to do it that often because I live, you know, here (laughs) nearby. And these centers are, you know, very much uh, my community. You know, I work at them and I socialize within them and, you know, practice in them. And so I don't have a lot of that opportunity. So I was kind of prepared, you know, when this, I thought, okay. (laughs) But still, I could feel the energy of reactivity, you know, Um, sort of rising up. And I, you know, I just paused and practiced kind of 
inquiring about uh, this person's understandings and perspective and what that meant for them in terms of how they lived their life and uh, got through the day. So we did okay. (laughs) It wasn't um, revelatory, but that to me, even that ability to be mindful of the reactivity and of the tendency to cling to my own opinions and defend and, uh, you know, think I'm right and be able to relax that enough to try to relate to this perfectly lovely being with very different views. We're all here together on this planet. Like-minded folks and opposite-minded folks and everything in between. As the Buddha reminded Ananda, the Sangha is the whole of the holy life. That's a really strong thing to say. What does that mean? for us. The refuges in the teachings are often referred to as the triple gem, as these jewels. So we can choose to reflect on the meaning and then to honor what's meaningful for us, to respect it, to open ourselves to it. Really, taking refuge isn't something we can force or make happen or fake. But it is something that can be reflected upon, considered, and ultimately known in our own experience. The power, the safety, the shelter of aligning with wisdom, with that which knows, aligning with the truth, with the way things are, feeling the support of friendship with others who share that motivation. And then aligning with manifesting that wisdom, that truth in our relationships with others who don't share those same aspirations or motivations. There are a lot of different similes for the three refuges in the various uh, writings. And I'll just end with one. 
The Buddha, that which knows, is like the sun rising over the horizon. The Dhamma, the way things are, is like the sun's rays spreading over the earth, dispelling darkness, bringing warmth and light. And the Sangha, others on the path, is like those beings for whom the darkness has been dispelled, who go about their affairs enjoying the warmth and the light of the sun. Let's sit together for a couple minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.